16.6 says, By mercy and truth, iniquity is purged. And by the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. What I like about this particular verse is the very first truth really directs our gaze to God and Christ specifically. By mercy, it was His mercy and His truth that literally purged iniquity on our behalf. And what's really fascinating is the second part where it says, and by the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. Uh, For the longest time, the whole concept of fear of the Lord, you know, you talk to anybody today, most people will say, you know, you're not supposed to fear the Lord today because we're Christians. He loves us. We've been accepted in the beloved. We are under the shadow of His protective wing. The blood of Christ cleanses us from sin. Thank you. But what is always interesting to me is when I see the fear of the Lord, I literally insert one word that's implied but not stated. And by the fear of offending the Lord, men depart from evil. You know, and it reminds me of when I was growing up. A lot of times I did not get into trouble because I had a healthy fear of my father. Plain and simple. Amen. Plain and simple. Yeah. And, and we all should have that reputation as fathers. Right. Right. And, and it's a healthy fear. I did not want to offend him to the point where I would be on his bad side. Mm-hmm. Now what we have in the world today is the exact opposite. I just wrote an article called uh, The Rise of... The spirit of Antichrist rising, and the whole concept of that is if we look around the world today, what we're seeing is evil becoming more and more prevalent, more and more acceptable, more and more clear. Uh, Just Sylvia and I like to watch, when we aren't listening to Mark, we watch um, Reverend Danny Jones from North Lake Baptist Church. I think I've mentioned him before. Um, He's another SBC pastor. And he has, one of his, his most recent sermon is Abiding Christ. What does it mean? How to do it. And um, very, very simple when you get into the scripture, but we can make it very, very difficult. And unfortunately, because of our sin nature, it can be difficult at times. Yeah. But, um, and Mark was kind of alluding to that today, really, yeah. uh, without calling it that. That's part of what his message was about. But um, it's really interesting because we know what the scripture says they are the way they are because there is no fear of the Lord among them. They don't have that at all. New York Times, what was it last week, came out with an editorial to say, let's, something about God is dead, or let's just get rid of God, or whatever. Yeah. 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 You know, it, it makes me think of when Jesus said somewhere in the gospel that, do not fear a man who can only kill, will kill the body. Yeah. But fear God who can kill the body and then throw you in the head. Exactly. And, and Hebrews... Hebrews tells us that, what is it? It's a terrifying thing, dreadful thing, to fall into the hands of the living God. And we don't have that People do not have that today. He's he's fine, Amanda. As long as he doesn't get up and scream and dance. No, he's fine. But, uh... I'd like to see him dance. Well, yeah, that's okay. He can dance. Sure, that's true. (laughs) Maybe we shouldn't get him started. But anyway, the, the whole point I'm trying to make is, it's a, really for me, in my mind, this is Proverbs 16.6 is an excellent segue into this, because what we are doing here in Revelation 5, and that's where I want you to turn to right now, I'd like to actually spend a little bit of time reading at least part of the chapter. Um, you probably read it in preparation uh, if you had time for tonight's class, but let's just look at it. I'm reading from the New King James Version, and... Uh, I'll read a little bit, then we'll talk about it, then I'll read some more, then we'll talk about it. And we're just going to go over chapter 5 tonight. And what's fascinating about chapter 5, I've talked to people who go, well, I'm not really sure why it's in there. Why is chapter 5? Eh, it's okay, yeah. Well, why? What's, what's the deal? Well, it's extremely important. Exceedingly important. As a matter of fact, if we didn't have chapter 5, we couldn't have the rest of Revelation. Yeah. That's really the way it is. So let's look at this. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel 
proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? No one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Mm. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. This, this is absolutely fantastic. And, I mean, I just love the whole chapter. Let's uh, open in a word of prayer and get right into it. Lord, we are extremely grateful for all of your word. And tonight as we open up chapter 5 of the last book of the Bible in which you revealed much to us, not all, but much, we ask that you will enlighten our minds, enlighten our hearts, guide us into your truth, and help us to appropriate the truth that you revealed to us through your word. And thank you for this time. And if there's any way that we can possibly begin to imagine to a greater degree than we already realize the absolute importance of chapter 5 and what's happening in it, please, please impress, impress it upon our hearts. We thank you and we are very grateful. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, it's interesting, by the way, before I, I came tonight, Sylvan and I were having some dinner and I, we were watching a video sent to me by one of my subscribers to my blog, and I'd never heard of the guy before, but it was really interesting because he talks about the fact that, sadly, and we already know this is probably coming, um, that there's a social grading score coming, and it is going to come to America. Uh, too many people are like, yeah, that's what we need. I mean, there, there are calls for censoring people off of social media if they don't say the right things. And it's probably going to be maybe five to ten years away, but it's certainly coming. And the sad part is what the people who want it badly won't even realize until it's too late, until it's too late that, oh, this is not a good idea, is it? This is not a good idea. Because it's through this social grading system that is, that is it's been in progress in, in works uh, in, in China for years. And they're perfecting it. And they're getting to a point where it's going to be one huge, same social grading system for all of China. Right now it's different in different parts of different provinces. But it eventually will become one system. And that will eventually come to other countries. Italy right now, they're getting ready to instate something like that. Um, it's just fascinating the way it's all working together. But what Revelation does... And it should always do this. It doesn't matter the timing of any of this. It doesn't matter really when these things happen. I mean, when I say it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter to us that much. Obviously, God has everything written in stone, and he just hasn't told us when exactly these things are going to happen. But they will happen. And while we shouldn't focus on the whens, we know that things are leading up to that point where all of this that follows chapter 5 is just going to start happening. Yeah. It's just going to start happening. We can't stop it. We can't stop it. You really can't stop it. Mm -hmm. um, I just read today that Macron was re-elected. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought to myself, well... Dominion voting okay. systems. What? Dominion voting systems. Yeah. I don't think they use the, that, but they no, probably have something video very similar. They were, you know, this whole school ballot thing so the guy's pulling two ballots out, and I guess they have some kind of system where you have to pick your ballot, but he takes the 
Build a pin ballot and he tears it a little bit. Exactly. Says, oh, this is spool. Right. That's one of their rules. If any of the ballots is torn or wrinkled, crumpled, or, yeah, wrinkled, you say. Wrinkled. Throw it out. Right in the garbage. Right in the garbage. So, yeah. And, and then it's just like you said, these things are going to happen. Yeah. This is this was designed by God. It's not a, oh, what a tragedy. There's not fair elections. This is a design by God. So Psalm 2. So you just need to roll with it. Psalm yeah, 2. exactly. I'm seeing more of Psalm 2 yeah. today. Why do the nations rage? They want to throw off the chains of God's law. Why do the nations rage? Because they hate God. I mean, you know, we don't have to be brilliant scientists to figure that out. We just need to be aware of what's happening in the world. But anyway, chapter 5. Let's start looking at this because it's really a fascinating, a fascinating thing. I don't have a ton of slides tonight, so when we're done, we're done. But Revelation 5, the throne. Okay. All of chapter 4, by the way, is an introduction. I hope you can read this. Can you all read this? Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's an introduction to the main point of chapters 4 to 5. That is, it all builds up to this point where all of a sudden now we are in the throne room of God and our focus becomes the scroll that is seven sealed. And then, of course, that's initial. But then all of a sudden, the emphasis while retaining uh, the limelight on the scroll, all of a sudden now goes back and widens out to include the land. Mm. And so this is absolutely... I mean, it's like... It, it's a beautifully written plot. You, you can see this in a movie where, where this is the key. This is the solution. This is it right here. Who can obtain it? And then... All of a sudden we read, no one, no one in heaven, verse 3, or on the earth, or under the earth. What, what this is so cool is, John is based, and don't forget, he's seeing visions. Yeah. He's not there, he's there in spirit, in, in the vision. His body was still on earth. We don't know if he was, we really don't know, other than that he was seeing a vision. So, John is seeing and explaining, saying, there was no created being no created being who was found able or worthy to open the scroll so here's the description of the scroll the scroll is in God right, God's right hand now who is sitting on the throne God the Father God the Father God the Father can you imagine being John we're not going to see necessarily God the Father when we're in heaven, we will see Jesus, but God, of course, is invisible. We will see his glory. We will see the glory of God the Father, which is the Holy Spirit, but we will see Jesus. We will see Jesus. But everything will be emanating from God's personages, his, his will, his glory. But here is John seeing, in essence, a being sitting on the throne who is God the Father. And then, he sees the throne in God the Father's right hand, and it's not like he was gripping it. The sense here is that he's not gripping it so that no one can take it. It's simply laying there in his hand. Oh, the scroll. Okay. The scroll. It's just laying there. So it's not like, nobody can take this from me. It's like, is anybody worthy to open this? It's an open invitation. And John realizes, I mean, the, the, the pageantry here is really phenomenal because he realizes there is no one, no created being in heaven, on the earth, or under the earth, was able to open it. So, of course, John cries. He's like, okay, well, it can't go any further. It stops. This is it. What's, what's going to happen now? So he's really beside himself. And then the, in verse 5, one of the elders, remember the 24 elders, which we believe may or may not represent the church, the church age, we don't really know. It was one of the things we talked about last time. But one of the elders there said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scrolls 
and loose its seven seals. So the scroll is the total focus of John's attention right now. He doesn't see, he isn't even focusing so much on God the Father. He's focusing on this scroll. And then Jesus, we will learn, will open the scroll in chapter 6. And of course, chapter 6 is what starts the tribulation. So we're not getting there tonight, but that's what's coming. So this pageantry is exceedingly important. Exceedingly important. So the scroll, the contents comprise almost all of Revelation of what will follow. So you can understand from chapter 6 to 22, if this scroll isn't open, we don't have chapter 6 through 22. Mm, okay. We just don't. It stops right there. And that's what John's concern was. We can look at Revelation and go, okay, John, I get it. Yeah, you were upset. But look, we've got, well, he didn't know that. He didn't know how this was going to work out. All right, so the scroll, interestingly enough, has writings on both sides of it. Now, this is really pretty rare. Yeah. They have found a few scrolls in antiquity that, that were so chock full of writing, they did have writings on both sides of it. But more times than not, a scroll was only written on one side. But there is so much information in this scroll that it's included on both sides and is then sealed with seven seals. It has a whole lot to reveal. So the contents of the scroll contains all of God's judgments, as I said, that we find in Genesis, excuse me, in Revelation 6 to 18 or 19, and the rest of it as well. So what's so cool about this scroll, it doesn't just talk about the judgments. It lists them for us, in detail. But beyond that, it also talks about what's coming mm. after, which is extremely beneficial to those especially, of course, who are saved, who know the Lord. And this, of course, this scroll, seven seals, representing the seven final years of humankind. The seven final years of humankind. That's, that's huge, really, if you stop yeah. to think about it. Seven. When is that going to start? Imagine, when it does start, the clock starts ticking down. Seven years. Seven years. That's it. It's amazing. So the scroll was sealed with seven seals. And this is also very interesting. Under Roma, that's what I love about this stuff. Because we know that Paul uses a lot of imagery from his time period. We know that. What's interesting here is, under Roman law, people were required to seal their will seven times, seven seals, showing the importance of it. And it would have made it very difficult, of course, to break a seal or two to get into it. So it, the Roman law required that. Seven may also hint at the absolute inviability of the scroll. And the fact that God says it, it's going to be done. Yeah. No questions. We may not understand all aspects of everything, and God hasn't told us everything, of course, but ultimately, it'll all be accomplished. Didn't Jesus say not one jot or tittle? Not one. Not one jot or tittle. Those are the smallest parts of the Hebrew written language. And it's funny, sometimes I'll read people's article and I'm going, oh, they left out a comma. That should be a semicolon. Or whatever, you know? Not one jot or tittle will be left unfulfilled. Well, isn't the seven uh, the, the number of completion? Yes, yes. absolutely. Yes, it is. Oh, yeah. Yes. So, yes. It's completion of mankind's time on the earth and the completion of God's perfect will right yeah exactly so it cannot be opened by the way without divine authorization and we see that we so see it's that like, it's like a verdict in his hand too yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Like, who can know what the verdict the trial who's that's coming exactly you know? he's like God the judge God the father the judge he's holding the scroll who is worthy to open the scroll and read its contents yeah 
All right, the question is asked, who is worthy? And I love this, though, because it says, uh, where is it, sorry. A strong angel, verse 2, proclaiming with a loud voice. It's funny, I don't know about you, but when I read this, and I see a strong angel, I immediately think, and I could be totally wrong, but that's just what comes to my mind. I picture this huge, huge angel that's four or five times bigger than John. Strong angel. I'm not sure what John saw there. Strength could have been in his build, his height, his powerful voice. We also know in the book of Revelation, and we'll get to it, that there are times where John does see extremely large angels. Yeah. Where right. the angels straddles the sea and the ocean, and John has to go up there and say, give me, the, give me that, please. <laughs> and he gives it to him. So it's really interesting because when I see things like this, then I think of the angelic sphere where not all angels are equal. They don't all look the same. They don't have the same power and ability. We know that from the book of Daniel mm -hmm. and other places in the Old Testament. We know it. Where um, Gabriel was waylaid. What is it? Dan Daniel 10, I think it is. Where he was waylaid. Maybe it was 9. Anyway, sorry. He was, he was kept at bay by another angel. And who had to help him? Michael. Mm -hmm. Michael had to come and release him, get him free. So it's really fascinating. We don't know a whole lot about the angelic sphere, except what is revealed in Scripture. So it's, it, to me, it's absolutely fascinating. So the question is asked, who is worthy? We do not know who this powerful angel is. If God wanted us to know, there would be a name associated with it. We have no clue. So it's really kind of pointless to guess. After he asks who is worthy to open at verse 2, no one is immediately found. There's this pregnant, dramatic pause for effect. And all of this is designed to introduce the next character in this whole thing, this pageantry. So John cries because it's like, okay, okay it's not going. What's going to happen now? And uh, no one was worthy? How can that be? What is fascinating, by the way, um, was it Mark who said this or Reverend Danny Jones? No, J uh, Reverend Jones said, I didn't know this. Learn something new every time you hear another sermon. Apparently, John, you may already know this. I don't know why I didn't. And Mark said it too. Okay, John was the only one, only apostle, who saw Christ crucified. The others had already run and hid. Yeah. And, and I find that fascinating. And that bears out the fact that he was the one whom Jesus loved. Not that he loved him more, but he had a special, unique relationship with Christ that maybe the others didn't have. And it's fascinating, here we see John called up, literally, to the throne room of heaven, in a vision, to see the pageantry that's, that's playing out. So he's overcome. He begins crying. No created being had the authority to open it. An elder comforts him. This is interesting, by the way. The elder specifically uses these two names or phrases or labels, Lion of Judah, Root of Jesse. And what's fascinating about this, and by the way, the word prevailed literally means overcome. He has prevailed. He overcame. How did he overcame? Well, it's interesting. We'll get there in a minute. But we know that Jesus' lineage goes directly back to King David. The root of Jesse. Mm -hmm. So these are divine titles that only appear together in the New Testament here in, in the book of Revelation. They are used individually in other portions. But here, this is one of those places in Revelation where it pulls from other portions of Scripture and puts it in one place. It's the only time in the New Testament where the line of Judah and root of Jesse appear together. Christ was worthy because he overcame. And what did he overcome? Well, we know he overcame Satan. He overcame sin. He overcame death. That's what he overcame. That's what made him worthy. Because every step of the way, every step of the way, he did God's perfect, God the Father's perfect will. I really like Mark's sermon today because it really practically ties into this. It really does. 
in so many ways. Christ was worthy because he overcame. Christ alone could implement God's purposes for the future revealed in this world. And that's what we're seeing. This, if you could kind of think about this as the pageantry of enthronement, for the lack of a better phrase. In ancient days, ancient times, what we're seeing in Revelation 5 is exactly the type of ceremony that would happen when someone was going to become king. This is exactly the process that they might go through. So, John now is focusing on the character of the Lamb. And he sees this in verse 6. I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a Lamb, as though it had been slain. Literally, Lamb here means little lamb. Little lamb. He is the line of Judah in power and in authority. The Greek arneon, little lamb, is contrasted with this line of Judah. So here he was. God became flesh, dwelt among us. He literally, in his first advent, was this. The little lamb. He came not to judge. He came not to condemn. He came to save. That's what he did with his first advent. The lion is a picture of strength, of course, and majesty, symbol of his second advent. So when he comes again, it will not be as this. It will be as that which if you're not saved when he returns will be exceedingly terrifying exceedingly terrifying and we start seeing that from almost the very beginning of the tribulation John used the designation little lamb 29 times in Revelation he will aggressively judge the world in righteousness and I mentioned Psalm 2 at the beginning tonight but really do we wonder? We don't wonder. We don't wonder why God will need to return to judge. We don't wonder. Because we see what's happening in the world. We see what's going on with Disney. We see what's going on with transgenderism. We see what's going on with uh, in the schools. In the schools. Uh, I just read an article this week that parents found, uncovered emails that teachers were sending to themselves about how to secretly indoctrinate children with transgenderism and bypass, bypass all parental contact. I mean, this is what's happening. Years ago, you may remember this as well, when we were in California, Proposition 8, right? Proposition 8 was um, same-sex marriage. And we were assured, everybody was like, look, we just want to have the same benefits as married people. That's all. That's all we want. Insurance. And we want to be able to get insurance. And we want to be able to, you know, we're living together anyway. Why can't we be married? That's all we want. And it took two times. First time, it, it did not pass. The second time, I think it barely passed. Yeah. Then the lawsuit started. Then finally, the Supreme Court of California ruled it constitutional. And it became the law of California. Not long after that, um, other states tried to push it through. And then eventually the United States Supreme Court, as you know, passed it and said, okay, it is constitutional, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Well, we thought, okay, well, that's it. We're going to have same-sex marriage. And then it wasn't that long after that where we started seeing other things happening. And now, just being gay is almost like boring. <laughs> really, it's boring. It's transgenderism. And everything yeah. else that goes along with it is what is being pushed now. So it's, it's kind of, you know what's going on. You see what's going on. So John presents the little lamb as victory through sacrifice. Victory through sacrifice. And isn't that what we're called to do? 
Isn't that what Mark was talking about today, which makes it so difficult at times for us? I wish I could do it perfectly. But, but Mark was right. Um, he goes, you know, sometimes the bigger things are easier to deal with. And, and it's the small things like misplacing your keys. And honest to goodness, that happened to me about a month ago. I'm sitting there going, I, I was called my wife and I said, I have no idea what I did with my keys. I cannot find my keys. I'm walking all over the house. I'm looking everywhere I thought to. I couldn't find my keys. And then by chance, I glance over at the front door and my keys are in the front doorknob. And I'm ready to have this conniption. <laughs> conniption. But, you know. Anyway, Jesus is the little lamb. Whoa. That happens to us all the way, all the time, by the way. It does? All the time. Yeah, it does? Yeah. Okay, so I'm Both not alone. Both of us. Oh, man. But you, you probably don't have a conniption over it. You're probably used to it, then. At this point, yes, we're used to it. It's like, have you checked the front door? Oh, <laughs> that's where they are. Isn't that crazy? Oh, wow. So Jesus says the Lamb was standing ready to complete his work. Uh, remember, this is pageantry of enthronement. <laughs> this is going through the proper steps legally. So that every jot and tittle of this particular ceremonial situation is covered and completed without fail. So Jesus, as the Lamb, was standing. His work on earth was done. Yeah. His work on earth was done, and he loudly proclaimed that, as Mark pointed out on Easter Sunday, it is finished. That work was done. This work was still before him. This work was still before him. So he was standing, ready to complete the work. And he bore marks of crucifixion, wounds, and scars. There's an obvious excellent chance that when we see Jesus, he is going to have those scars. Yeah. Those will be glorified scars. From the thorns, the crown of thorns, his wrists, his feet. They are the marks of our salvation. There's no reason why we, why we would not see them, why they would not be visible. They're visible here. He bore the marks of crucifixion. The portrait of his death, when, when John says, as if slaughtered. He isn't saying, like, well, maybe it didn't happen. He's saying, no, it's like, those marks were so obvious on this little lamb that they would have led to death. They did lead to death. Yet here he is, alive, ready, as always, to do the will of the Father. So his total and continual self-sacrifice, while he lived on earth, qualified him to receive supreme power from God the Father. Isn't that amazing? Imagine. It's so hard to really imagine. God... In the councils of the Godhead, before the world was ever created, they sat down together and they said, well, here's what's going to happen. We're going to do this, then this will happen, and then we're going to create this, and one of them will be Lucifer, and that's what's going to happen. And he's going to lead a third away. So we know it's going to happen, so we need to do this, and this, and this. All of that was predetermined, decided before any creative effort as if not that God has to have an effort, but any creation went into play. And Jesus is sitting there saying, yeah, I will be, yeah, absolutely. I will become part human and retain all my deity, Philippians 2. I will become human, be born of a woman. I will be sinless and I will spend the rest of my days on earth remaining sinless by completely being obedient to God the Father in submission and sacrifice. So they had this whole thing worked out. We know that. That's what makes it so laughable in so many ways. As difficult as situations can be for us, it's laughable that Satan really thinks he has an opportunity, a chance, to overcome and overthrow God. Mm -hmm. Is it that, or he just can't do anything but simply continue to try? So the lamb had seven horns, 
the Bible tells us, seven horns. And that represents power and authority. Times seven, the perfect fulfilled number. Seven eyes representing the fullness of his divine wisdom and discernment. That goes back, by the way, to Zechariah 4.10, where you can see similar imagery there. Oh, this one finally comes up. Sorry. All right. So what's interesting about this, the seven spirits. Mm. How, how do we have seven spirits? Well, seven spirits likely refers to both the seven horns and the seven eyes. But ultimately, it refers to the yeah. full power, energy, operation, and authority of the Holy Spirit. In other words, Christ is perfectly filled with the fullness of the Holy Spirit 100% of the time, unlike us. Because what keeps us, or what limits our being filled with the Holy Spirit? 100% of the time. We're, we're filled. You, you understand what I'm saying. The Holy Spirit always indwells us. Yeah. But He never works perfectly in and through us because of Our us. sin nature. Our sin nature. Yeah. Our lack of... Yes, and that's, again, that's what Mark was talking about this morning. That's exactly it. Paul talks about it. You know, when he says, I'm paraphrasing, who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to Christ our Lord. So, Jesus is fully energized by the operation of the Holy Spirit. 24-7, 365 days, without a glitch. We will be too, one day, but not today. Not right now. So the idea is that God was fully in control of the Lamb. Why? Because the Lamb was fully submitted to God the Father. And that's what empowered Christ to live the life that he lived. And it is the same for us, with the exception that we can't do it perfectly in this life. We just can't. It's impossible. But that doesn't mean that's not that we shouldn't strive for that anyway. You know? The Lamb takes the scroll, verse 7. And this is not a sense where he wrests it from God the Father. He simply receives it, takes it. He knew he had won the honor of being able to take that scroll. So verse 7 says, Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And of course we know that the right hand is the symbol of power. And so here we see God the Father on the throne. And it's interesting that John never really describes God the Father. I'm sure the image was blurred to him. Yeah. Jesus as the Lamb comes and takes, receives the seventh scroll, the seven-sealed scroll. Now this is the fascinating part which I alluded to before. Revelation 5, 5 chapter 5, gives illustration of the ancient enthronement ceremony when kings ascended to the throne. If we were to kind of correlate it to something today, which I think is kind of comical because of still having kings today, but if we looked at uh, the UK, Great Britain, and whenever they have installed a new king or a queen, they go through a very regal, almost convoluted, very intricate, specific process before that person is actually enthroned or installed as king or queen. It is no different in heaven because God is a God of order. Mm -hmm. God is a God of precision. And God is the God who made all the rules. And we should love the fact that he doesn't just make the rules and set himself apart from them. But he makes the rules and says, I am going to follow the rules I made too. Nebuchadnezzar had the good fortune, if you want to call it that, of making any law he wanted to make. But as king, he was not under 
that long. He could ignore it. He didn't have to sit there and go, ooh, ooh, man, I made, I made this law. Oh, okay, well, I guess I'll just do it. For Nebuchadnezzar, he was totally an imperialistic ruler. He could make any law he wanted, and he lived the way he wanted. He was not affected by those laws. We next, have a similar system here. Yeah, we do. Congress <laughs> passes laws all the time. We do. That don't apply to Congress. Yeah. If, if you, you can have a constitution that guarantees these rights, but if you have Supreme Court judges that won't even hear a case right. because you don't have standing, then I know. You know, it's, I know you, it's crazy, man. Yeah, you don't have order anymore. I know. claim you don't have standing. Oh, that, that's what they say. They know we do. but Yeah, so it, it is interesting. The next uh, country or empire after Nebuchadnezzar's was, of course, Persia the Medes and the Persians. Well, those kings, they can make any law they wanted to, but unlike Nebuchadnezzar, they had to follow those laws. They were cornered by those laws, if you will, hemmed in. So it's really interesting. God does this willingly because he knows that the laws he makes are completely perfect, just, and right. And that's what I love about this because Jesus went through the entire process to get this. Also, of course, to get salvation for us, but to ultimately get this. And what does he ultimately get? Well, we'll talk about that a little bit more next time, but what he ultimately gets is what he always deserved to have, which is what? What happened when Satan tempted successfully Eve and then Adam to sin? What, what did they do Besides just sinning, I shouldn't say just sinning, besides their sin, what else happened that was favorable to Satan? The, the, yeah, they, they didn't, they decided to go their own way. They decided they, to go their and, own and way. And they took Satan, when Satan said, you will be like God, they mm -hmm. took upon themselves the attitude that Satan has that we want to be our own thing. Right. Well, they destroyed yeah. creation. They destroyed creation, that's mm -hmm. both right. And what else? Question God. They, they... They questioned God. And how did this benefit Satan? Well, there were, the, the death came in because they were cast out of God's presence. Right. They were. Right. They were. So he began to destroy God's creation. And in what other way did it benefit Satan? Well, he now had control over he the earth. He now literally had been invited in by Eve and Adam and began to gain control over what? God's Creation. So everything God did, Satan would attempt to thwart it. Okay, he was successful in literally killing Adam and Eve. First spiritually and then eventually physically. Everything else, it was on a death spiral. Yeah. So because Satan was literally invited into and gained control over the earth and everything on it, remember he's the prince of the power of the air, there had to be a completely specific way for God to get it back. God wouldn't just go, you know what, I'm sick of you, so I'm just taking this back. You're out of here. And I forget where it is in the New Testament, but Paul says, he says that Jesus basically undid Adam's mistake. He that? did. Yeah. And, and, and just as Adam was directly created by God, unlike us, Jesus was the second directly Adam. created by yes. God, put into yeah. Mary's womb. Yes, and Christ the second Adam overcame in our, on our behalf. So, because of everything that Jesus did on this earth, when he said it was finished, it was actually leading to this, which means that God would now regain the title deed to earth. Yeah. And it was done via ceremony, through righteous conduct, through absolute fulfillment of God the Father's perfect will every step of the way, and now Satan knows he's on borrowed time. He knows that. Because the deed to earth has been given back to God in Christ. So this is, this is what's so fascinating about this. I can imagine as Satan saw this happening, he was shuddering. Good. But he knows what's coming. He can, you know put up all the false bravado you want and he, he works well with that. But the reality is 
the deed to the earth has been given back, rightfully earned back by Christ. And He is the one who holds it. And nothing, nothing ever will take it out of His right hand. Nothing. I remember so, we watched that one show where he talked about and the, the purpose of the elders. They were they are there as the witnesses, witnesses. of this. You're talking about the DVD? The DVD, yeah. yes. The witnesses of that title deed. Yes. Like he's like this the kinsman is, redeemer. He's this getting is this a court back. of law. This is yeah. a court of law. What's happening here, this is why it's being recorded. This is why it's being witnessed. Because what's happening here in chapter five is a process in a courtroom where it will never be invalidated. Because every step of the way was precise and complete. I wonder if the elders are not representing the 12 tribes. They could be. There could be because both of those. there's two witnesses. I mean, you do the math. Yeah. Jewish law requires two witnesses right. to, to establish a fact. Right. So it, some people believe it could be, it could be the... Uh, tribes of Israel. It could also be 12 tribes of Israel representative and the 12 apostles of the church which right. re represents the 24. It could be right. a number of those things. Well, you, were, you were mentioning something else too and I, and, and I attended the Orthodox Church for a little while. Okay. One of the traditions that they have in there. And there is a verse that connects to it. I don't know where your theology is on this, but they believe that when Jesus died, he actually went into hell. Mm. Broke in and said, okay, I'm the one everyone that believes follow me out. And it and the, among the dead that were there. I'm yeah, I look, at, I look at that as, yes, when he went to Sheol. But remember, there are two parts, or were two parts, to Sheol. Remember Abraham's bosom, the, the mm -hmm. parable? That, I don't think that was a parable. I think it was an actual true story. That's my take. When Jesus is talking about Abraham's bosom and Lazarus went to Abraham, and then you've got this, the group of the other people on the other side, separated by a huge gulf. And remember, who was the... Uh, who was the, the guy who was the rich... Oh, the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man, Lazarus, when he lived, his life was horrible, and then now he's in Abraham's bosom, leaning against, literally leaning against Abraham's chest. The rich man dies, and he's taken to the horrible place, and it was separated by a huge gulf. So my opinion on that, for what it's worth, is that Jesus came and preached to those in the place of blessing Abraham's bosom. Not those people although they may have heard it, but he basically came and said, okay, we're leaving, and he led captives in his train. Those are the captives he led out. And from that moment on, the Abraham's bosom side, remember, no one could be to heaven. No one could go to heaven before that. They were in a waiting place. So, well, I shouldn't say a waiting place as if it's uh, purgatory. It's not, <laughs> uh, it's not at all like that. They're, when we die right now, our souls, our spirits, are with Christ, right? But we yeah. wait for our glorified bodies to be given to us later. So in a sense, we will be in a waiting period, waiting for the final fulfillment of, uh, of the rapture, basically, whenever that happens. The, so, reason, the reason I brought it up yes. is I thought is think of Satan's response when Jesus comes in and all those people come out of there. Oh, yeah. And he was like, oh, man. Oh, he knows he's something. Oh, yeah. Well, and they made a mistake. Who did? Uh, Satan. He killed Christ. He did. Yes. That was a mistake. Yes. Yeah. The scripture tells us if they had known, he never would have incited the crowds to That's exactly right. He, he would have never tempted the Pharisees yeah. To, yeah. to kill Christ. He just wanted Christ out of the way. He figured, okay, fine. He tried to kill him from the moment of his birth. And he kept trying, trying. And finally, finally, things worked together. And good, we're going to crucify him. We're going to crucify him. And it played right into God's hands. It's almost like he, he thought the same way as the, the Jews that were blinded, that he thought right. Jesus was going to be an earthly king. Yep, exactly. Yeah. exactly. And that's, many commentators believe that's what uh, Judas's total motivation was. He knew Christ was innocent, and he knew that he goes, i got to get this guy to do something. And then as soon as he did what he did, he realized, of course he was under the influence of Satan at the time, but then he realized, oh my God, goodness, what have I done? So that's why he went out and killed himself, because he realized the enormity of his sin. And what would Christ say about him? It would have been better for that person, Judas, had he never been born. It makes perfect sense. But anyway, 
So Revelation gives the illustration of the ancient enthronement. The steps included exaltation in verse 5. Presentation, verse 6. Again, this is ceremonial. And then finally, enthronement. So you're exalted, you're lifted up, you go up to the throne. You go up to the throne. Thrones were always right up, up. However many steps, you always go up to them. And then you are presented to the world or to that community as king. Then you take your seat, given the crown, and are enthroned. This is exactly what we're looking at here. And this is exactly what Jesus went through. And with God the Father giving Jesus, allowing him to take the scroll, we are seeing the transfer of authority. So let's not forget... Let's not forget when Jesus said, my father judges no one. When Jesus comes back, he is going to be judging. And he will do so perfectly. You go to a court of law today. I just read the other day a person who was convicted of voter fraud and sentenced. Convicted and sentenced to over a year in jail. I just read that all of a sudden the charges were dropped. And you sit there and you go, wait a minute, wait a minute. minute." They were convicted. They were actually sentenced. Both of those were passed. How do you drop charges when the person is convicted and then sentenced? You can ask for a new trial, but often you start serving your sentence while the new trial is going. How does that happen? That's because courts in our world are adjudicated by human beings who can be corrupt, liars, or just stupid. This will, of course, never be the case. Never. And we know that. There would praise, adoration, and worship of this rightful king in verse 8. Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a heart and golden bowls full of incense. That's what I love about Revelation. We don't have to sit there and go, wow, I wonder what the incense means, which are the prayers of the saints. So the sense here is that our prayers to God are heartfelt prayers, are such a sweet aroma to God. We should never stop praying. He loves to hear our prayers. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God. Now notice, these are the, what? Who was saying this? The 24 elders. These are human beings. These are not angels. Angels cannot be saved. They're either fallen or they're not fallen. So these 24 elders, whoever they were, whoever they are, sorry, are human beings. You have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth. They're already looking ahead to the thousand year millennial reign in which they will reign with him. They will be his co-regents. He will be the primary and sole and total authority. But these and others will reign with him. So those who follow Christ in this life consistently using the same formula, if you will, of self-sacrifice and submission to God in this life will be rewarded in the next by having more responsibility, reigning with him as he administrates his kingdom. Verse 11. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. John cannot count this number. 
That's why he says 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands more. He has no clue. To him, it is such an amazingly large number. He cannot wrap his brain around the exact number. Verse 13, And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. By the way, that is looking ahead to when every knee shall bow. Amen. Every knee shall bow. Everyone. The people at the New York Times who said, let's get rid of God. Yuval Nori, Noah Harari, um, <clears throat> Klaus Schwab's top advisor, who said, you know, God is dead. It just takes a while to get rid of the body. He will bow the knee and declare absolute praise and honor to our land. Everyone will. And then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. Well, so that, our, what that, you said that God said that is a devious statement. I'm sorry. Yeah, talk about said, blasphemy. Yeah, and he's talking oh. about it just takes a while to get rid of the body, as in, you want the body, it's the church. And that's what he's talking about. Oh, yeah. We it's going to take us a while to ruin them, to spoil them, to yeah. fill them up full of wokeness and lies and, and distort. And you got yeah. the Pope already joining with the world. Oh, before and oh yeah. Oh, yeah. He's, he's hobnobbing with the Muslims and, you know, Jewish leaders. And let's, let's do something where all the major religions can worship uh, through the Abrahamic Accords and all that stuff. And yeah. They want to get rid of it all. They will. They will try. Um, which is why, when we get to it, the second part of the tribulation is so ramped up with persecution. So it's just it's pretty interesting. I'm, I'm sure you've read it. So our prayers are like fragrant incense to God. The enthronement of the Lamb is now complete. In verse 19, it's a new song. Praise to God the Father. I can't imagine that day when we're there with no sin nature, and perfect voices, no lack of energy, no lack of wisdom, and everything we will do, everything we think, everything we say, will commemorate the enthronement of the Lamb and praise Him for who He is. Everything we say, everything we do, everything we think. We can't say that now. None of us can say that. So this innumerable group joins in in praise and he's unable to count the multitudes and the Lamb receives all power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory and blessing. In other words, what doesn't he receive? He receives everything. I think Mark alluded to this before, and I've, I've alluded to it too. We had the creation in Genesis. Then sin. Then the millennial kingdom and the new heavens and the new earth. Everything between the creation, the millennial kingdom, the new heavens and earth, everything between those two is one huge parenthesis one huge parenthesis. It was supposed to go on for eternity once Genesis happened, the creation, Genesis 1 and 2. Of course, it didn't, but it's going to. It will pick up where it left off. And this huge parenthesis will not even be a memory to us once we get there. Look, let me ask you this yes. question. I'm probably stealing thunder, but it, it is something that makes me think. So I may not have an I know, answer. I know... When we enter into the thousand-year reign first, right. that's before the judgment in the lake of fire, because that comes right. after Satan comes back again out of the abyss. And that's my understanding too. Yeah. So, are, we're not given those new bodies 
Oh no, no, yes we are. We are after, okay. Because I know that the don't slain and the Lord rise and rule. Well, but don't forget, when the rapture happens, whenever it happens, pre, mid, post, doesn't make any difference. When the rapture happens, Paul says, that's when we get our glorified bodies, to meet Christ in the air. In other words, we will be fitted for heaven and eternity with Christ because we will have our new bodies and the sin nature will be dramatically excised from us. So once the rapture happens, and again, pre, mid, post, doesn't matter, we know it's going to, when that event takes place, that's when we get our new bodies. So when we go to the millennial kingdom, we will have glorified bodies. We will be reigning with Christ. That's what the elders were talking about when they said they will reign with him because the millennial kingdom had not happened yet from their perspective. So then that's when you say those who have overcome death because of their faith, that's you've overcome death at that point. Yes, and then don't... Their death actually isn't destroyed until after the great right. frame of judgment. So there's right. still death in the millennial period. Yeah. Yes, and don't forget the people who the Jews who survive the tribulation, who are the remnant, they will go in with other nations that, remember, when Jesus comes back, one of the first things he does is the judgment of the sheep and the goats of the nations. Only those who pass that judgment will be allowed into, and of course, to pass that judgment, they need to be saved. Those saved during the tribulation will go into the millennial kingdom. They will not have glorified bodies. They will still be completely human, which is why Christ has to rule with a rod of iron during the millennial kingdom to nip it in the bud. And people will be born during that and time. And people will be born during that time who were born with a sin nature and will also need to receive salvation. So we Christians are the only ones who will have glorified bodies if we, as we go into the rapture before or die, before we get to the millennial kingdom. Make sense? Okay, cool. Well, we have to live a thousand years, too. We do. Yeah. So, yeah, we're going to need new bodies. We're going to do that in this current state. Yeah. <laughs> it says directly before the millennial kingdom, but those that died in Christ will be resurrected. So when you're resurrected, oh, yeah. you're yeah. going to have a new body. Absolutely. Right. 100%. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking forward to it because I just turned 65 and I'm, I'm kind of getting tired. Uh, you yeah. just wonder what you're going to look like. Like, no glasses. Will you have all that hair? I'll have beautiful hair like I had when I was 15. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, any questions? All right. Fascinating. It is. All right, I think we're done. What was that last thing? All seven yeah. qualities? What? Seven qualities belong intrinsically. All these seven qualities belong intrinsically Power to Christ. Christ but it is that fact that he was slaughtered that called forth this praise. So he's already all these. He gained everything. Yeah. The fact that he was slaughtered on our behalf is really why they're praising him. It was the substitutionary death. Who would have ever thought of that? besides God. Who would have ever thought of that? This is what I don't understand when people say, you know what, I just want a comfortable religion, man. I, I, I just, you know, I want to do my own thing. I, I just want to feel good about me. I, Christianity, it's, it's, it's too complex. No, it's not complex at all. You're a sinner. God is perfect. He became man, lived a perfect life, died in your place so that you don't have to because you are a sinner estranged from God, and Jesus, as the God-man, made the way for you to get back. Every other religion requires works. Every other religion. I don't mean to yell. Okay, well, anything else? I my son the other day. So that's the difference. Yep. Yeah. And I don't, I, this was just kind of reiterating. Sort of Gnostic wisdom. Oh yeah, Gnosticism. Paul had a lot to say about that. So, Revelation 5 sets forth the enthronement of Jesus as king on the earth. Revelation 6 begins the release of the judgments from the seven-sealed scroll. And that's really important because, I didn't want to get into this tonight, we're going to stop. But some people say, well, you know, the first part of the tribulation is, is man's wrath against man, or it's Satan's wrath against man. Well, the reality is, once the tribulation begins, it begins because God directs it and right. appoints. So, now it's time, you go. All right, next, you go. That is God directing the traffic. That's God. Yes, it may look like that judgment 
sets men against men, women against women, nation against nation. But it's still because of God's wrath being poured out. So Revelation 5 is the pageantry that needs to happen legally, ceremonially, so that Revelation 6 can start. And the release of the judgments could not occur until after Jesus is rightfully enthroned as king over the earth and given all authority. And he will physically return to rule the planet earth one day. And by the way, this is extremely important. Him returning to the earth physically proves ownership. He owns the earth. He's not just here as a visiting emissary or a king. He owns it and has every right to establish his kingdom on this earth. And anyone during this time who disagrees with him will face him. And I guarantee, and you know it as well as I do, that he will never lose an argument. Fulfills prophecy regarding God's promises to yeah. King David. Oh, that's next time. Okay. Uh, any questions? Yeah, I got a comment. Please. About the ownership thing. Okay. Uh, I have this tendency to believe that, uh, of course, this is 70, going back to the Jewish aspect of it, uh, of 70 um, weeks of years. Mm -hmm. But I believe that the last year or the next year after this will be a jubilee year. Okay. And that is the time that rightful ownership is returned yeah, true. to the rightful owner. Right? Yeah. Which right. is? Jesus Christ. Amen. So... Yeah, there's a lot of stuff. You know, God did not create those Jewish uh, festivals. or festivals. He didn't create those just for fun. Yeah. They have they a purpose. Have they have purpose. I had, I had they a, still uh, have purpose. I had a guy in the room with my